are now locked into Radio Juxtapose, the home of contemporary art and culture conversation. Coming up today. Don't get discouraged from making stuff because you think like the existing paradigm won't accept you. That world will change. I think you see that in um, not only in art, but in all, all sorts of other different parts of culture, you know, like skateboarding, video games, tattooing. Before it was all seen as like a fringe thing. You're a loser if you did that. And now it's the complete opposite. This is Radio Juxtapose. It's getting a little hot out there. Summer's just around the corner. I think we're all quietly waiting in anticipation to see what shape or form it takes this year. Hopefully, we'll be able to salvage at least some of it. Tell you what though, the thought of a busy bar right now sends my anxiety levels through the roof. Welcome to the Radio Juxtapose podcast. If this is your first time listening, don't worry. There's going to be some familiar sounding American accents coming in real soon. Radio Juxtapose is hosted by the international superstar Evan Preco, who's based out of San Francisco, and myself, Doug Gillen, based out of London. Every week, we take a fresh look at the contemporary art world through the lens of those that shape it. Thanks to everyone that's been sending us messages, getting in touch with comments about the show. It means a lot to both of us to know that you guys are listening. As always, be sure to subscribe to the channel so you never miss an episode. On today's show, we're joined by a real heavyweight, an artist that's evolved and manoeuvred through various pockets of culture, whether he was designing covers for DC Comics, fashion collections for Prada, from murals to museums, he seems to find comfort wherever he finds himself. We're both really excited today to be joined by James Jean. After the conversation, myself and Evan are going to have our regular catch-up about life in isolation, which mainly revolves around the new Michael Jordan docu-series, The Last Dance. So be sure to stick around for that. Before we get into the interview with James, I was curious to know when Evan first came across his work. And of course, his answer is perfect. Enjoy the show. Actually, James Jean was a feature in the first issue of Juxtapose I worked on in the late months of 2006. And I had known his work, but I didn't really know him. I didn't know his name because I, I was like kind of I paid attention to comics, but I didn't know uh, like I didn't know, you know, you didn't really know people's faces at that time. But like, you know, when I did a little bit more research at the time, I was like, oh, he's the guy who, won- who did these comic books. He's the one who won these awards. He's kind of, a, you know, he's a star. He was, an, he was a star that all of a sudden we were going to have in juxtapose for some of the things that he wasn't a star for. And it like kind of seemed a little counterintuitive for like what we were trying to do. We're coming into juxtapose, new editor. I was managing editor. Like we're going to come in with a home run. And it was like, oh, we're going to show James's fine art and not the comic stuff he was famous for. And I remember it being like, this doesn't, like, is this what we're going to do? Are we going to do this stuff? And I remember, like, we had another artist in that issue, Rob Abeda, who was, like, the a creative director for Stussy, and we showed, like, his abstract paintings. And I was like, okay, so we're going to take all these people that they're famous for, and we're going to put it in the magazine for things that people don't know about them yet. And that was, like, my first kind of learning about, oh, no, that's cool to take to do stuff like that. That was what was really cool about Juxtapose. And James was, like, the, the guy that I remember. So we had a portrait of him riding a bike, uh, somewhere I think maybe in, in Los Angeles. Um, and he's been 
Three times he's been on the cover. Um, he was like the centerpiece of the juxtaposed super flat show he did with Takashi Murakami. He's just like kind of the he bridges so many gaps or in or so many he bridges so many like genres and so many things that we do and that the that our scene likes and he's kind of like he's kind of an all-star. He's an all-star, he's a Hall of Famer. He's the Michael Jordan of comic books, man. Doug, we look like we're twins right now, by the way. I should have wore a white t-shirt. Oh, that would have been weird. <laughs> that would have been. Would have been a little much. James, by the way, this is like the this is the fastest organizing of a podcast we've ever had. That's the beauty of the lockdown. No one's allowed to go anywhere else. It's like I know where you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> unless you unless you took the red pill and uh, oh, you're right there at the beach. I'm based out of London just now. Are the beaches busy at the moment where you are? Uh, I haven't been, but um, I've seen pictures. Yeah, I mean, especially further uh, south, like Hunt- Huntington Beach near, you know, there's like Orange County. It's a little more conservative there or, you know, red. You mean denial? Yes, denial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. I mean, you know, I, I live pretty close to Santa Monica and uh, we, we haven't been there yet. So you're being a, a responsible parent. I'm trying to be. It's it's a huge struggle. Yeah. So you're in, OK. So you're in Los Angeles. You're in West Los Angeles. Um, and I know that we talked like right when the pandemic happened and you're like, yeah, I like, I understand that you're, you're, you're like, you're, you're a parent, your your life changes immediately when something like this happens. Are you now like an expert on the zoom teaching, you know, the kind of conferences and are are your kids old enough for that? He's just starting. So, you know, he, he was in, um, like a Japanese preschool before, and we were going through the whole process of applying to, uh, you know, elementary school, kindergarten. And we were relieved that he got into the school that we wanted to get him into. And, um, and then the, pande- the pandemic hit. And, um, and now that's all up in the air. Um, it's, it's super uncertain. And, um, uh, you know, the school just uh, announced some online classes. But, uh, you know, he's been taking a couple of classes a week, uh, Japanese classes, just like hour long lessons uh sometimes you can sit through them i would say most of the time you can sit through them but but yeah i mean you do have to like sit with them i was gonna say can you sit through them (laughs) (laughs) you know we tried we tried this one thing where uh there was like a a reptile wrangler that was doing like a a zoom thing for kids and it just it it just didn't work (laughs) Like, like the they were outside, so the internet wasn't very good. It was just like very choppy, and you cu- you couldn't see the reptiles at all. Really, it was like they were all like blurry and like a lot of artifacting going on there. But the vision was there. That's the that's the main thing. The effort, yeah, the effort. <laughs> my my girlfriend was doing these art tutorial classes online, and one of the one of the people rented a baby hippo from the Cincinnati Zoo to stream in, so people could draw the hippo. It was like amazing. And all these kids were like taking it. It was amazing. Oh, wow. I don't know if you guys know baby hippos apparently are a thing because there's not that many of them. That, that's one way to throw the listeners a little curveball for the start of this episode. <laughs> they, came, they came for art, but they're getting baby hippos. Doug, it doesn't, it's, it's a pandemic, Doug. Nothing matters anymore. Days don't matter. I mean, th- this is, I, I, I showered for the first time in a week for, the, <laughs> for this podcast. <laughs> I just shaved for this podcast. I had just before this, I had a full fluffy patchy salt and pepper thing going on. And I was like, no, do you know what? 
I've got something to dress up for, so I'm gonna put on a shirt and have a shave. All for you, James. <laughs> All for you. I'm honored. Well, okay. <laughs> All right. So you showered for the first time in a week, but like, are you getting any art stuff done? Has has anything in your like art scheduling changed at all or are you kind of trying to be as business as usual with being productive there's a lot to i think talk about there uh you know obviously a lot has been disrupted um i was supposed to have a show in uh beijing in uh june and okay. this was good this was going to be um a continuation of the museum show I had last year at the Lotte Museum of Art. So we're going to bring over a bunch of those um, massive paintings I'd done and and show some new work. And then, uh, you know, that's kind of just on an uh, indefinite hold right now. You know, not because it's, uh, you know, things are are stalled in China. Actually, everything is, is uh, kind of back to normal in China is because they don't know if I can even travel there. Now that the U.S. is right. in such a bad spot, I'm, I might be stuck in quarantine if I if I land, if I land there. And, uh, you know, I, I've been making a lot of things overseas. So like the, the publishing of my books, I was supposed to have a book out by now that that was delayed for um, a couple of months. And, um, you know, now, now it's getting back to normal. So uh, we hope to get that in by end of July. Uh, and then uh, I'm also making a lot of sculptures. So I was making some sculptures in Italy and, you know, they were hit pretty hard. And um, <laughs> then I was also working with a bronze founder here in LA and uh, they were closed for a while too. I think they're just starting to get back to work. Uh, so yeah, a, a lot has been disrupted. And, um, you know, for my own studio practice, uh, I, I have a huge list of commissions. So I've just been cranking away at all these commissions. And I mean, it's I'm busier than ever because of the increased demands on my time with, with the childcare and the homeschooling and just keeping up the household because um, I don't have any help anymore in, in inside the house. I, I used to, well, I, I do run the, the studio out of the house. So I, I'll have assistants, uh, three guys come over to help me out. And uh, now I've rented a uh, isolation studio at my friend's place. So he has like a, an extension to his house where he doesn't even need to to go there. So um, he's got this back room, kind of a small room. And I just have one guy go in there like every other day. And that's how we've been keeping them um, separated. And everyone seems pretty comfortable with that. And I really can't envision having people come back to the home uh, in the foreseeable future. So, uh, you know, especially because my kids running around. I mean, it was really nice before uh, to have the family here and, and the work here. We would have uh, our tea times. I don't know if you've seen that on my uh, Instagram. We'd have, yeah. like, have break every day and you know, my wife would prepare like, you know, an interesting array of snacks for, for everyone to have and, you know, Japanese snacks. Yeah. Now in the future, I, I don't know, I might have to rent a new space, which kind of sucks because I, I love the efficiency of just rolling out of bed into work. You know, I, I'm, I'm always uh, running around anyway. I, 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 you know, my time was limited before. Now it's like even more limited and then if i have to commute you know that's just a whole other thing to to worry about just to contextualize a bit so your wife i'm guessing your wife is japanese yeah yes but you're from from taiwan originally yeah, yeah so what's, born in taiwan you were talking about your kid 
learning Japanese. How's, how's, I mean, obviously with your work, there's obviously a, a, a great understanding of Japanese culture. How's your understanding of the Japanese language and, and everything like that? Oh, it's, it's, uh, almost non-existent. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, I, I love, uh, going to Japan and we go there every year, but, um, uh, language has never, has never been my, uh, forte. Uh, you know, I could barely speak Chinese, Mandarin and, um, you know, that, that might have happened because, uh, you know, you know, when I grew up, my parents also spoke Taiwanese, which is a, a dialect that they kept as like their secret language. So so they could um, speak in code so, so their the kids wouldn't understand what they're talking about. <laughs> and um, I don't know, maybe there's some kind of uh, psychological, psycholo- psychological trauma there. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've just and I always resisted going to Chinese school uh, on the weekends. And, you know, I felt this intense pressure to to assimilate into uh, the culture at large in uh, in New Jersey. Yeah, I'm kind of uh, I'm basically monolingual at this point. But uh, but when I went to college, uh, I started traveling more. So I, I I went back to China for this this weird prog- program. It's called the China Synergy Program, where they um, wanted to attract back ethnic Chinese students to kind of um, you know attract talent from overseas and have them like see how great China is or is becoming. So this was like in the year 2000 or 2001. And they would take like all these college kids from all over. And, you know, I think I was the only person who went to art school. There are all these kids from like Harvard, Stanford, you know, all these prestigious universities. You had to apply and write an essay on like why you wanted to go. So it was like a three week fully paid trip. Um, and they put you up in, you know, these, you know, really fancy hotels to, to try and show you how amazing China is. And, you know, that was sort of like my first reintroduction back into uh, Asia. Mm. You know, so they took us through like Hong Kong and Guangzhou, Beijing, Shanghai. And um, and yeah, then since then, I've sort of been going back a lot more. Um, but recently, it's just it's been mostly Japan because it's just uh, an amazing, amazing place. And uh Really sad that we can't we can't go there this year. How long did you live in Taiwan for? Well, I moved to New Jersey when I was yeah when I was three, so I I barely remember remember any of it. And and then it was literally between when you were three to to college to this kind of almost it sounds like an Israeli birthright. I think. Yeah, I was gonna say that. What did your What did your essay What What did you write in the essay? That, like, uh, <laughs> this essay that you wrote like twenty years ago. <laughs> when you're when you're in, when you're in art school, uh, writing essays isn't necessarily like the most like comfortable uh, thing to do. But how did you pitch yourself to get on that? I'm curious. I really don't remember. Um, okay. I don't know. What's it talking about? You didn't just like draw a picture and be like, "Look, I'm really good." No, I think it was just different enough from you know all the other, you know. Um, college kids who, who went to, you know, so-called legitimate schools that, uh, yeah, maybe they want some kind of, you know, I fit the diversity quota. I think that's what happened. Okay. <laughs> the diversity quota that only included Chinese, <laughs> ethnic Chinese people. Because <laughs> we've had a couple of people in from New Jersey. So what was New Jersey like growing up for you? Obviously you were into comic books, but was culture or arts and culture kind of like a big, was there a big presence of that in the, in the home? No, I had basically zero uh, culture and, <laughs> you know, New Jersey is just, uh, I mean, it's, there's a lot of great nature in New Jersey, uh, but also a lot of strip malls and, um, it's, it, it was very bland. I don't know. There's something about 
New Jersey that creates a lot of um, artists, right? Like Matt Saki yeah. is from New Jersey cause, uh, uh, Robert Lazzarini. Actually, I think we were, uh, we grew up in the same town. Um, he's about 10 years older than me. I don't even, he probably doesn't even know, doesn't know me, but yeah, I don't know why <laughs> New Jersey tends to be like a nexus of a lot of different things, but, but no, my, my parents weren't artistic. So, uh, you know, my dad, um, uh, worked in industrial plastics and then my mom eventually worked at that same company and, um, you know, they just, uh, moved over cause my dad got this opportunity to, to, uh, uh, move the family over there. It was very prestigious at the time, you know, because when he grew up in Taiwan, he grew up on a farm and you would always tell stories about how you'd have to, you know, make uh, straw brooms and sell them at the market. And yeah, you know, the, the typical uh, story of, of poverty to, to um, middle class America. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, achieving that, that American dream that was so uh, elusive back then. It's kind of ironic because now, uh, we see how the tables have turned. I was going to say, yeah, the tables have turned. You know, it's it's interesting because I'm glad you brought up Matsaki because he's been making a lot of paintings recently. You can see on his Instagram about that kind of are reflecting on his childhood of kind of being in America and sort of being a little out of sorts about fitting in or kind of being, I don't know, being accepted. And he always knew that he could draw his way out of a situation. Is what, I remember he described it in our in our podcast we did with him. But for you, what were like the kind of cultural things that you gravitated towards as you were growing up? Well, uh, I think when I was 13, a friend of mine showed me a comic book for the first time. And that blew my mind because, you know, I was always drawing and I knew I could, um, you know, I could, uh, could draw, but I didn't know what to do with it. And, um, you know, there were no like art, art books in the house. There was no discussion about, you know, the art world or going to museums really and uh when i saw comic book that sort of represented like this this like whole new portal of possibility of you know using the drawing for something kind of um expressive and and uh, and useful in terms of you know letting your imagination kind of become visible and uh, i just became obsessed with comic books and i would just you know i'd ride my bike to the comic book shop every week and and um uh, actually, I, I grew up delivering newspapers with my dad. So he would, he would give me five dollars uh, every morning that I would do uh, deliver the newspaper with him, um, and uh, that would be my weekly uh, comic book allowance. <laughs> so That's good money. I, Can you- I, I amassed uh, a lot of copies. What's our ballpark? year that we're talking here is this eighties? Well, I started doing well. This when I was thirteen. That was ninety three. Oh shit! Sorry. <laughs> I, I, like my little. <laughs> um, I, I don't look that old i hope not, not yet. <laughs> no 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 not at all. i'm curious because you know for for a lot of kids now or people uh kind of in our age group you were kind of that person for them like they saw a comic book and you kind of inspired them probably to get into art or i can take my skills and get into art when did you start learning about the names behind the art that you liked like the artists that actually created the stuff that you got into because that at the time in the nineties, like it wasn't as easy just to be like, look somebody up on Google. Like, Hey, this is the person that makes this stuff. Like there was a big gap between who made the art and the actual final product. Well, I mean, I, I think in, in comics, it, you know, you, the, the creators were, were pretty well known. So you would always like chase right. after okay. all the stuff that they would do you know, every week. Okay. Um, you know, you, you look for, for the work, but, um, 
um, but yeah, I mean that there was that I was on the cusp of that a huge change, especially in college, because uh, you know when I went to school, uh, no one used the computer. I mean, you had to go to the library to use the internet. That that really changed everything. Like right when I graduated, that's when everyone was starting to um, you know like make their own portfolio websites and and um, uh, you know I think maybe there's only like one person in my graduating class that used Photoshop. And then, um, yeah, now it's completely, uh, changed, you know, it's completely flipped. And, uh, you know, what's interesting also is that it was mostly male in my class. And then now I have friends who teach school, it's like 90% female, then a lot of uh, gender fluidity that that's happening now too. So it's, it's very interesting how, how things have changed in the past, uh, uh, 20 years, you know, something in the water. Maybe <laughs> I, I don't want to get all Alex Jones on you, but oh no, there's enough of that in the in the world right now. If you wanna if you wanna go in down that rabbit hole, there's a whole part of YouTube just saved for you for that. We're gonna see a video on James's you know Instagram later today of him walking on the beach, just like I can be here, whatever. I, I saw that uh, the New York Times did an article on that um, on this little mini documentary called Plandemic. Have you heard of that? Oh. Sh- I didn't even watch it. I watched two minutes of this thing. I was like, you're all canceled, everyone that shared this. It's funny because I'd never heard of it until the New York Times did that article. I'm the same. Yeah. How how viral this video went and, you know, it like beat out like the most viral video that any, you know, kind of music artist or any kind of celebrity has ever done in the past. And I was like, wait, what is this video? I, I guess I don't exist in in those bubbles. Yeah. But yeah. now that. Now that they talked about it, I'm like, okay, I want to see it. And I tried looking it up and it was, it's been deleted on you know, all the mainstream sites. So, you know, I finally found a link and, and saw it. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's important to, to, uh, look at all that stuff. Um, you know, it's kind of like, a uh, a mental, uh, vaccination, you know, like the more stuff <laughs> that, that you see in like all the different bubbles, like you kind of get develop like mental, uh, antibodies and then you, Hopefully you develop like some idea of uh, actual reality. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, or crazy. Not. it's crazy. No, I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, it's crazy how that you could have the most viral video that they're talking about. And they're like, this is broken all records. And you're like, I have never heard of this thing because it's viral in bubbles. And then it's only these little moments that you realize how, how much of an echo chamber that we all live in. We all live in these isolated self-programmed algorithms, you know, that we say we want to see this. So this is what we see. I don't want to see that because I don't agree with that. So I won't be shown that. And then it's, it's those moments you're like, oh shit, there's there's something kind of going under the surface there. Yeah. I I think it's, it's really criminal how uh, we've been so manipulated by these algorithms. I mean, Facebook is so evil. It's so terrible. I mean, I I don't, I don't use it at all anymore. I haven't used it for years, but yeah, it's really kind of destroying our ability to, to have like uh, a, a more objective view on things. When, when uh, Instagram was good, there was no algorithm, right? Like you, you follow the people you followed and you, you could, you could, see everything that they posted and you know not everything will be something you want to see but maybe it's something that you need to see you know it's like getting your your vegetables right but now it's just like we're getting inundated with with so much so much junk and um you know it's it's like this um you know mass uh zombification of it's memes you know i i don't 
I, 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 I'm as guilty as anyone. I'll sit there. If it's a meme on the feed, I'll sit right. there. I may not like it, but I'm going to read it. And if there's yeah. more than one, I'm going to read every yeah. single one of them. And because it feeds that, it's like, oh, we know what you want to see. You want to see more memes. I'm like, no, I don't. I want to see this stuff that people are doing that I follow. I actively want to see what work, what kind of creativity is out there. And then you end up just like getting the wrong stuff and it's like oh this doesn't work for me it's poison it's a mass poisoning of our of our psyche it, james does like i mean like, we're kind of jumping around but it's, whatever it's great does the news seep into your work at all like is it hard to shut off because like when i look at your work i don't think of like contemporary politics but like there is you, you gotta be it's affects something right yeah I, I think i think it does uh you know i, I just listened to um your podcast with uh with Cleon, you know, his yeah. stuff is, you know, really touches on, on, you know, a lot of that subject matter. But, um, uh, you know, I always felt like my work was kind of, um, an escape, I guess, from worldly concerns and exploring more, more like universal allegories and narratives and, um, you know, delving deep into the subconscious yeah, I, I I think the reason why I make my work is because it it's an escape from reality. Few things uh, seep in here and there. I really can't think of anything right now. But but that's not the intent of the work. Even though while I'm making it, you know, I'm I'm listening to everything that's happening out there. I listen to a lot of podcasts and they keep up with the news and Twitter and um, and everything that, that that's going on. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's the role I should take because I, I, I believe that, uh, you know, each artist should uh, kind of explore their own natural gifts and inclinations. And that that's what makes uh, good work strong. You know, like, you know, obviously uh, it's great when, when, when art can uh, open your mind or, or expose you to, to new perspectives on, you know, the world around you and, and mm -hmm. to, to feel contemporary, you know, to feel like it belongs in, in the time that, that you live in. I always felt like I was kind of contrarian in a way where I just wanted, I wanted to be like maybe a little uh, old fashioned. I think there was a tagline on my old website that said like pictorial convention. Yeah. I mean, I always felt like, like an outsider in a way. So like I was kind of always doing like a little bit the opposite of what was kind of expected in the contemporary art world. Yeah, not to say that it won't uh, happen in my work. I mean, I've been thinking a long time about how do I bring, you know, my background, my my, uh, you know, being a uh, Taiwanese American, like how do I bring that into the work? And um, you know, it's been discussed among some of my friends, but you know, it might it might happen soon, I think. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, yeah, because you know, I am like steeped deep <laughs> into into a lot of information but um yeah but somehow the the work kind of always uh remained like a separate thing kind of like like created by like uh you know different different muse you know and then uh, i'm just like the, the vessel for 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 the muse to to speak through but is there a a, a sort of a, a large collective of uh taiwanese people from in in where you are in la or or more so when when you were in new jersey i think there was a small group but i i, I didn't really um see too many of them i'm mean, you know my 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 school was mostly a lot of italians jews uh there were some uh 
uh, East Indians, but but very few. You know, I think uh, Matt Saki probably has a similar experience where yeah, there were just very few Asians around. Um, I think California there there's a lot more since, especially and I feel that when I moved here um, to LA, it, the community just seemed, seemed much more uh, developed, and there's just yeah a lot more people that looked like me running around. It was <laughs> yeah, I would I would say that about my experiences growing up in San Francisco area is that it was basically white kids and Asian kids, and that was basically it, almost like fifty percent, fifty percent. Yeah, I, I think I would have had. Uh, better self-esteem maybe <laughs> if I grew up in an environment with, with more of my, uh, more of my peoples. Wait, you have low self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always curious about like when you got out of art school and you started walking into some of the, you know, comic book offices, studios, art directors, uh, how did those like initial interviews slash portfolio reviews go? Like, did you get denied a lot or did you kind of, break in and it was like go well when i graduated school i my portfolio was full of these like very elaborate like narrative paintings i want to be a painter what was, what did you graduate with james well i graduated with a uh, uh bfa in illustration that's what i thought okay all right and you know because the illustration department i you know had had a, a focus on learning you know anatomy and you know and technique and um as opposed to the, the the fine arts department, which focused mostly on on critique, but yeah, the plan was I was going to try and do maybe like some editorial illustration or book covers, and then try and be a painter. And I got rejected everywhere I went because my portfolio didn't look like an illustration por- portfolio, and people didn't know what to do with it. And sort of as like a last resort, my friend said, "Hey, you should drop off your portfolio at uh, DC Comics uh, to this art director, uh, Mark Chiarello." And um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I stopped by to see him and I actually showed him my sketchbook. And I think my sketchbook really kind of uh, got me the gig. And, you know, I, I wasn't drawing comics at the time. I mean, I still I, I never really did draw much comics at all. But yeah, but then uh, I got a gig doing Fables, uh, this book published by Vertical Comics for like seven years, like in a row. <laughs> so uh, basically I had uh, this assignment like every month. Uh, where I would do one cover for Vertigo. And, and in the beginning, that was enough for me to survive on, to, to pay my rent and then have a little bit left over. And then once those covers started coming out, then I started doing more editorial illustrations because art directors would see those comic book covers. And then I started doing stuff for magazines and the newspapers and album covers and advertising. It kind of snowballed where I became really well known as an illustrator. And it was really difficult to kind of uh, pursue my personal work. And then I think around like 2007, uh, Eric White uh, recommended me for this um, uh, this job with Prada because they were doing these large um, wallpaper coverings for the Epicenter store in Soho, and they uh, were looking for someone who uh, worked in comics. <laughs> but the funny thing was, you know, I, I did a they they had one idea to do like a graphic novel while covering and i wasn't really doing that at the time but uh since i worked in comics they thought i was a comic book artist it's kind of confusing but uh but i did you know we worked on the pitch and it was rejected but then i actually sent in my my own ideas and then it turned into like you know this was large like non-linear kind of surreal boshian landscape 
that Mrs. Prada really liked. And then that turned into a clothing collaboration. And then we did a, an animation. And then at that point, I was like, OK, I think it's time to maybe step away. This is kind of like the pinnacle of what I could achieve as like an illustrator. Maybe this is a good time to kind of just pivot to 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 painting. And then I had my my first gallery show um, at uh, at Jonathan Levine in 2008. Right. Yeah. At the height of the financial collapse. So <laughs> actually, when I graduated school, that was uh you know, 9-11 had happened. And then when I started my painting career, you know, the financial collapse happened. And then um, now that I'm, you know, starting like my museum career, now we have, we're in this big uh, pandemic. So it's it's funny to see like these patterns happen. So, so thanks for that. you you can only go up you can only go up from here i think is is the lesson there's a lot of things we we, the timeline just expanded so so much there yeah quite quite dramatically there because i don't know much about like comic book illustration and what that environment and that culture in somewhere like dc comics would be was there ever weird you being not a comic book guy not well a comic book uh, fan but not a comic book illustrator coming in and doing a cover on doing series of covers was there ever like a kind of like you should be doing this before you do this i mean perception wise from the audience it, it there was never an issue because they they really liked what i was doing but i noticed there were some weird things behind the scenes where like um you know i, I did some covers for like batgirl batman um the more traditional superhero stuff they they always split up the duties between um you know there's like a penciler an inker and a colorist and I, that seemed really weird to me because I was like, I'm just making like the full image. Like you don't, I don't need a colorist, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? Right. And then, and then the other thing that, that um, was a little unconventional was uh, I asked to use the, the logo of the book uh, while I was composing the image. Cause it was such a huge part of the composition that I, I felt like I needed to integrate that somehow. And maybe that was like a little bit innovative at the time. I know like Dave McKean was, was doing a lot of um, cool things with, with Sandman and, and that was a big inspiration too. But, but just, you know, things that felt natural to me, you know, in terms of just like, I'm just making an entire picture by myself, like was very weird in the comic book world where it was, you know, kind of split up between, you know, it was like a division of labor thing that that was a holdover from, you know, the studio system that, that developed, uh, you know, over the over the century, over the past century. But did you have to sort of go cold turkey when you got out of the comic book world? Like, I'm not taking any more assignments, nothing else. I'm going to focus on painting. Or did you sort of ease it? Because I, I was trying to remember when we did the feature on you in early, early 2007, I think. But we started in 2006. Yeah. Like if you were starting to wean yourself off, I can't remember. Yeah, I think that at, at that point I I'd, I'd stopped. Yeah, and I think a lot of people were not happy about that or or sad. They they were saddened. When you say when you say people, do you mean like readers or do you mean like people in the industry or both? Uh, both. Yeah. So yeah. I think at, at the near the end, I was doing covers for um, you, you know Gerard Way, um, yeah, the, my, my Chemical Romance, um. He did a book called Umbrella Academy, which is now a, a show on Netflix. And I was doing the covers for the the first story arc, and then he he really wanted me to to continue doing the covers. And at that point, you know, I was like, unfortunately, like you know, I really want to pursue this other thing. I'm really sorry, and I think we we didn't speak for a while. <laughs> 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 I think we we recently started talking again. But I was going to say, if we get any down thumbs on the YouTube, we know who it is. <laughs> 
one thing I'm interested in is why do um, why is there a distinction between an illustrator and an artist? Well, I, yeah, that's a very interesting question, uh, and I think you know, juxtapose plays a large part in that question because you know you guys, I mean, you were founded by Robert Williams, right? And he's uh, always been like this outsider guy that always felt like never that he never got his due in the uh, so-called legitimate fine art world. And, uh, you know, as, as juxtapose has, has evolved, you know, you've sort of straddled that line, you know, you feature uh, work that is very illustrative and you do feature work from, you know, uh, illustrators, people who do commercial work. And then, you know, also, uh, artists, people who function in the art world. And I mean, if you look at, uh, just the basic activity of everything, it, it, it's all commercial. And, um, uh, so I, I don't think that the, you know, there's a, I don't think there's a true distinction, you know, between, um, a commercial artist and, and a fine artist when there's, you know, uh, financial transaction invo uh, involved and especially more transparent now that you see all these online viewing rooms and you can see all the prices of all the artists and you know, <laughs> it's, um, you know, not to go on another tangent, but do, do you follow, uh, Brad Trammell? Do you know this guy? Uh, yeah, he's, he has, um, a, uh, it's like a art meme account, but <laughs> no, another one, <laughs> but, but Brad's, uh, he's almost like a life coach for artists and, um, he's all about, you know, kind of, uh, breaking down the system of the art world, especially in the, um, art education world, the MFA factory, I guess, um, you know, basically says, you know, you don't need to repeat the same thing over the course of an entire career to be considered a serious artist. You can make whatever you want. You don't need to make work for uh, what he calls count choculas, you know, basically like the evil, uh, you know, uh, capitalists that <laughs> that um, that uh, rule the world through through their wealth. Yeah, you should you should make work for your friends, for your develop your own audience. And, and I always felt that I kind of did that on my um, on my own for a long time because uh, I was on the outside. I was never uh, kind of uh, accepted into the uh, the art world for a long time. You know, being an illustrator or, you know, a comic artist, which I never was a comic artist, but I just, you know, I just did the covers. That was sort of like doing porn and then trying to be like, you know, a, uh, a Hollywood actor, <laughs> right? That there's like... Um, a stigma yeah maybe yeah, yeah it's kind of kind of a stigma and it was weird too because like you like certain comic book art like r crumb was able to make it into that contemporary art conversation right uh it took a long yeah. time obviously robert sort of did and kind of didn't you know like and but it always came down to like those comic book covers they did like i've now recently seemed to get more respect than they did back 20 years ago yeah i think it's just a matter of time and, um, you know, because when that work came out in the beginning, th there was a stigma too, especially, you know, with Robert Crumb, he, the, the, when, 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 uh, when his comics were, were being made, you know, it, there was a lot of, uh, you know, negative reaction to it, you know, was he, 
racist, is he misogynist? You know, it's uh, but now when you see him and he's like this cute old man, <laughs> you know, it's like it's like a different the perception changes, you know, it's like it becomes a it's a part of history of, of, of a different era and it, it gains a, a historical importance, uh, especially when, you know, like a, a major blue chip gallery um, creates that that story, that mythology, that context that yeah. that, that translates into money <laughs> you know um so yeah it's a very tricky weird thing that um you know i'm still trying to navigate and uh you know i'm even unsure about how i'm perceived um in some ways and you know i try not to worry about that too much of course it's always in the back of my head but um my the thing that keeps me going is that i just want to keep making my work and uh, i have this anxiety about like surviving, <laughs> but, uh, uh, even now, uh, but I, I just love making things, designing things and, and putting things out in the world and, and, and sharing it. And, um, you know, if I'm not part of that conversation, that that's fine, but yeah, it, it is something that, that, uh, something to contend with. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think it was maybe just even five years ago, you and I had that conversation with Takashi, which ended up making the juxtapose right. super flat show. And he seemed so shocked when we were saying, there's a lot of artists that don't get this recognition, like that are like kind of that deserve this, or that like the, this contemporary art circle was sort of blocking a lot of entry points. And he kind of seemed a little surprised by it, I think, in that conversation, even though he understood it. But like, it's amazing how in five years, how much that's changed, which is great. It's interesting to see Takashi's perspective because, uh, you know, there, there are some. <laughs> Uh, blind spots, I think, you know, because I would bring up maybe some, you know, European painters, and he he wouldn't know like famous European painters, and he, he wouldn't know who they who they were, and and that, that was a little bit yeah. shocking, but, um, but yeah, I think uh, you know he's he's been in the art world world for a really long time, but now he's kind of pivoted to you know, all sorts of different areas. Social media icon. I mean, I don't even know. it's fashion icon, a little bit of it all. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's been. An interesting part of what he does is just really getting deep into emerging culture, you know, YouTube streamers and, you know, influencers. Um, and some of that, he, I think he said that, you know, he, he's gotten some, uh, a little bit of influence from me, uh, from, uh, from some of the things that, that, that I was doing in terms of, you know, some of the friends I've been making, like in, in, in the, in the culinary world and you know maybe jewelry and doing just just anything really to that that seemed um you know like an interesting collaboration or transformation of the work but you know for sure he, he's definitely the been a pioneer in 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 the case of someone from that vaulted uh you know art world you know kind of going doing a deep dive into you know like twitch streamers <laughs> you know it's kind of i mean i guess you, i guess you see richard prince doing that too but um it's the the juxtapositions can can be really entertaining is acceptance from the fine art world something that you want i mean i you know a long time ago maybe yeah a long time ago for sure that you know when i was in my late 20s early 30s and then now that i'm 40 and and have done a bunch of different things um i don't think so anymore i mean i, I think i feel more uh more confident now and um you know in what i'm doing and i think a big lesson was that uh 
during my late twenties, I, I changed the work a lot. I was trying to make my paintings more uh, serious in a way, <laughs> basically trying to to do work that um, I thought was more acceptable in the art world. But it turned out everyone was interested in in the previous work. You know, like uh, what's that line from? Uh, Woody Allen, you know, they, the, the aliens come down to earth and they, they tell him like that they like his earlier, funnier films <laughs> <laughs> before he got, before he got all serious. And then, and then now, now he's like canceled. <laughs> oh, he's done. He's been Polanski'd. <laughs> yeah. In terms of, uh, yeah, the acceptance, I, I, I feel like, um, I mean, I'm, I'm working on, on museum shows now, which I think is a sign that that doesn't really I was going to say that, that, that kind of, that helps with the confidence a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. The trauma from New Jersey is still. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever feel pressure to kind of like go down that route that I've seen? My original interest was more in street art uh, and that kind of was my gateway drug to, to, to the wider art world. And within that, especially with graphic design and illustration, there was always this kind of like this from so many artists it's like built upon a character you know you build a character and then you build that world and then the character will follow follow you was this ever a question that you had to have with yourself about creating work around an, a, a, um, a particular figure or a, a narrative in that way a, a mascot <laughs> kind of i mean like i see it a lot in street art it's really it's, it's quite quite prevalent and i was wondering if this is something that ever kind of you, you ever had to navigate through no, I, I had uh, avoided that for a long time. I mean, not not purposely avoided it, but um, I was just doing a huge variety of different things, and that never really came up until recently. I started um, kind of going back. Actually, at at Takashi's suggestion, like maybe around 2015, we did a we did a small show together, and he said, "Hey, you know, why don't you? I, I really like this older work." Why don't you go back and see, you know, what, what you can do with it? And so I've actually kind of returned to some of my older images and mined them for for new material. And, um, you know, recently I started doing more like uh, edition sculptures with this character, you know, this kind of like bald headed uh, kid that looks like he's from the animation of uh, Fantastic Planet. <laughs> and um, and this one character I call the, the Descendant um, and um you know it's this kind of upside down boy that's like floating in the air and it's sort of meant to kind of um, evoke the feeling of just uh, being in transition but that's only happened yeah in the past uh, couple of years um and uh, i can see how effective that is you know it's something you know like i said oh, really? before I was, i've always been like a little bit of a <clears throat> contrarian so I, I like i always avoided doing toys you know i, I always avoided like making the same thing over and over or or focusing on on a singular character but i do see the power of you know branding and uh you know maybe i've uh i've gotten soft in my old age <laughs> i've just succumbed to to what uh give it a year what the market is demanding here yeah. i was gonna go into your work a little bit while we were there um while we're talking about it for an individual piece you'll be pulling in references coming from history art history mythology you know all these different concepts and ideas um how do you decide what fits where maybe talk us through it a little bit sure um well you know it all begins with with just a drawing 
you know, sometimes I'll, I'll have a very clear idea of what the image is and sometimes I, I won't. What's interesting is that a lot of times that the narrative only happens like after the image is finished. Like I'll, I'll make the picture and I won't know what it's about. But then but then comes the time where, you know, I, I need to put my conspiracy, cons- conspiratorial, uh, you know, what, is, what do you call it? Uh, conspiratorial hat on a tinfoil hat i think they call it yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and start to make all the connections you know all, all the um uh you know the, the symbols the characters you know what they're doing you know i'll i'll create the narrative only after everything is drawn um which i think is is uh kind of fascinating because you know maybe it means maybe i'm tapping into into something universal in a way and then you know i have all these books on like ethnographic art or you know, Chinese art history or Japanese woodblock prints. And, you know, then, of course, you know, I'll, I'll Google things like, you know, what, what does this particular thing mean? What are its connotations? Uh, you know, and I'll find more references that way. And then afterwards, uh, it actually kind of creates a an unexpected uh, story. That's the most exciting part of the process for me is um, having the sketch tell me what it's about. It's, it's rarely that I'll, I'll like read something or see something and then translate that into into a piece. It usually just comes from, I guess, you know, the ether. There, mu- and all. there must be a great degree of emotional investment and attachment to a piece then. Sometimes I would say, I mean, most of the times uh, I just like finishing stuff <laughs> and then moving on you know, and letting go and, and, and just, you know, cutting it off and, and moving on to, to the next thing. Um, uh, I think part of that, that process of forgetting is, is very important to me. Um, and maybe that's why that explains why my memory is so terrible. Maybe that's why I can't remember how to speak, uh, my native <laughs> language. <laughs> maybe that's why, you know, I, I try and, um, uh, forget, uh, a lot of the unpleasant things that 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 uh, happened to me in the past, you know, I, you know, I, I don't um, feel bad selling a painting, um, especially because a lot of the the paintings that that um, are sold go to collectors that really love it. Um, you know, I think it's it's really rare to see a work of mine at auction. You know, which I think is like a whole other. <laughs> other conversation you know i've talked to takashi about about this a lot he 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 always says he he needs to have like a certain amount of work in in circulation in the uh the secondary market and he he keeps close tabs on on it all but but yeah i I think talking to a lot a lot of uh art dealers and and people i work with they 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 do remark upon how like impressive the retention rate of the work is, you know, people hold on to it for a very long time because they actually want to live with it. And, you know, they're not buying it because it's this recognizable commodity. Does it, does it bother you whether or not the collector or even to maybe slightly lesser degree, the audience, sorry to kind of keep asking, um, does, does it bother you if they understand your references and what it meant to you when you were making it or does it you just don't care no i mean i think the the work has its own life and its own story to tell i i resisted for a long time to explain the work but um again maybe my instincts were wrong because when i did my uh 
my museum show at, at um, uh, in uh, in Seoul, I had to. They wanted me. The curators wanted me to explain all the paintings. So, like, I, I spent a lot of time uh, writing about the work, and then uh, people love the explanations. I mean, I, I even did like, um, what do you call it? The the audio guy. I listened to that on YouTube before this. It's up. It's it's an audio book up on an audio guide up on YouTube. There is. Oh shit! Okay, someone's ripped it. I listened to it before this show. Whoops. The lawyer's getting called right now. I mean, James, I was wondering too, like, to me, like, when I see your work and I, when, I, when I hear you talking about it, there's something so contemporary about what you're doing because you're talking about Chinese influences and Japanese influences and you're Taiwanese and you grew up in New Jersey and, like, there's this melding of so many things that feels so contemporary. Like, do you have scholars or critics in Asia that are just so fascinated by how you've mixed all these different cultures together? And is that a conversation that you have there now that you've had a museum show in Seoul and now you're going to be going to Beijing? Is that a conversation that comes up? Yeah, it does come up. And, um, you know, for the the catalog, they they enlisted some help from um, some scholars from the, the art universities there. And they, they've written some nice essays about the work. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the next step is is to work with more writers. And I did work with a friend of mine who's a writer who used to work at the Getty, and he's um, actually more more um, well versed in architecture. But he did write a nice nice essay about my work, and we go into also the influence from California and you know wildfires and then all sorts of stuff, uh, all sorts of connections that that happen there. Um, I I don't think people realize like <laughs> I guess how how layered a lot of the work is even in in like the wordplay that happens you know because th there is a lot of i guess uh what you call it like you know i have a lot of fun with the work like you know uh, for example i recently did this painting it was a commission for um you know this uh big uh executive of a of a company and you know it's through like a, a art consultant and uh it's this painting called skipper and it's like this this you know one of my characters and he's kind of like skipping through some clouds and she was like asking me you know what is this painting about i just need like a simple thing i was like well you know he's a, he's a skipper but i mean skipping through the clouds but skipper is also like double meaning is you know like a captain of a ship or you know pilot of an airplane or you know it's like very uh appropriate to to who's receiving the painting and then you know minds were blown you know so oh, that's perfect that's amazing <laughs> um yeah, I, I think going forward, um, you know, I, I will try and, you know, put in a lot more, I guess, uh, illumination behind the paintings. Because before I wanted the paintings to be mysterious. I wanted people to kind of, you know, uncover the hidden, you know, uncover the hidden nuggets of, of information themselves. But but maybe people just don't have the time these days, you know, we... we James, you've 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 graduated into museum world, man. Like you now, it's like you got to write essays about every painting. You got to like. I, I was just saying, I just wrote a uh, an introduction for my friend uh, Mu Pan. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's gonna have a a large book coming out, and you know that was interesting to explore and talk about our our shared identity. Um, because Taiwan itself, it's like a very conflicted place it doesn't have a, a, a established identity because you know china 
claims that it's it's um, you know they have the one China policy and there's it's, it's very controversial even you know I probably shouldn't even <laughs> even talk about it now but you're gonna have men at the door in dark suits. probably yeah <laughs> the news yesterday in China was kind of oh okay things are accelerating a little bit who are some of your artistic heroes uh well you know, Takashi Murakami for sure um mostly painters um you know Neo Rauch or Rausch yeah. <laughs> is a big one. And I know, you know, he's definitely had a huge influence on, on, on a lot of painters. Uh, you know, Chris Ware was another big early one. Great one. I mean, it, it really ranges from all over. Um, Gustave Dore to go way back. And um, yeah, there's too many to list, really, because I, I look at everything from all sorts of fields and, you know, West African masquerade. It's like a big inspiration. So if you look at like Nick Cave's work, you can see how he's been able to take that into this, you know, contemporary context. And, um, you know, I just, I just love like line, color, shapes, texture. Um, and, you know, also how as humans, we're able to kind of transform ourselves and create constantly create new mythologies that we can, um, escape in and kind of how we can use those stories to reconcile our relationship with with the world and yeah basically i i like artists that um use their hands you know you could see a lot of the the handiwork in in the paintings or, or in the craft um and i'm really drawn to that you know what's interesting, James, is that uh, we're doing a reader survey at the moment, and I kind of snuck a little peek of what the artists that everyone, like people that, you know, the artists that people like um, who read Juxtapose. And you, Neo Rausch, and Lisa y- Yuskovich are all kind of like, are like, and it's like, I was like, oh man, because like when we were doing this conversation, I'm like, I-, I feel like that's a lot of influences that you guys all kind of share in the way that your art kind of, uh, the final results of your art. I thought it was great to see that from our readers. So that was cool. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I, I love Lisa's work too. Her paintings are yeah. amazing, and um, gosh, I, I really want to get back to doing work that's more painterly, you know, with more like atmospheric edges, softer edges. For some reason, I've gotten like too obsessed with making these like perfect lines. Um, I'm trying to break out of that right now, but but yeah, I think there's something there in terms of you know having conversation with dreams with our bodies. Yeah. Yeah, it just feels like a very human kind of approach to, to, um, to making making art. I was going to ask if you have a particular, uh, particular avenue or area of mythology that you like to research more than others, or if there's any characters from your research and mythology that stand out that you just were like, "Fuck, that's cool." <laughs> um oh shoot well i think there's a lot in in chinese mythology that that's very cool and you can see um in the the movies that they're making now it's uh that they're able to um, if you look at like the monkey king there's there's so much there but uh yeah i'm also looking at you know actually i, I recently started uh telling my son about like Greek mythology. <laughs> we I forget how that came up. But I was talking, telling him about like Titans and who they are. And then, <laughs> and then he, he actually, he was like, what, what was he saying? He was, he, he, he used the word Titan like during a, one of his, uh, um, sessions, <laughs> one of his online <laughs> sessions. And the tutor's like, wait, what? <laughs> where did you learn? Where did you learn this word? 
but yeah, but it's cool to see like you know, Greek mythology. And you see, you see that turn into like the video game, you know, God of War, and to see that like visualized. And um, there's too much. There's too much stuff, and I, it's hard to to rattle it off right now. But yeah, I kind of put you on the spot on that one. I'm should be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still get excited by painting then? Well, yeah, I I I love painting i mean i it's it's the thing that that brings me the most kind of comfort and stability in my life as everything else around me is kind of you know constantly disintegrating i guess that's the concept of entropy everything's just constantly falling apart and we're like doing our best to kind of prop everything up um but painting is is easy you know it's like very low risk it's just like a flat surface and you, you make marks on it and the end results are are incredibly gratifying and um and yeah it's it's just uh i can't imagine doing anything else it gives me like the most fulfillment and um excitement of anything else i can do i don't know if that sounds depressing <laughs> or if that's or that's good no, but i i felt like i had like a question to ask and i'm like no i did that kind of feels like a perfect i don't know like a perfect way to conclude it it doesn't sound depressing at all actually it sounds it sounds like somebody who likes to paint <laughs> i hate this question but i feel like i have to ask it just based on i'm curious now no it's it's a cliched question and how you've managed to get you know, I, I see a lot of DIY in what you've done. You know, you, you've kind of, you've broken through all these different pockets of culture to get yourself to where you are. What's the best piece of advice that you can give for doing that? Like, what what is the key to that hustle? I think, uh, okay, there's two parts. I think the first one is diligence. You just keep making stuff. Uh, the second part is don't get discouraged from making stuff because you think like the existing paradigm uh, won't accept you. The thing is that world will change. When I graduate from school, the world was a certain way. We thought it was going to function a certain way. You had to do certain things to succeed. That all has completely changed. Um, I think you see that in um, not only in art, but in all all sorts of other different parts of um, the cult uh, of culture, you know, like skateboarding, video games, um, tattooing. Before it was all seen as like a fringe thing. You're a loser if you did that. And now it's the complete opposite. Now the people, mm -hmm. the people who, who are great at doing those things and practice those things, they're they they're at the top. They they're making the culture. They're leading the way. So I think it's important to, yeah, just never get discouraged thinking that, oh, the world is never going to, it doesn't work that way. I can never, um, they'll never accept me, you know, just keep making the work that you believe in that excites you. And then you'll end up being um, at the forefront down the line. Love it. That was fucking beautiful. That was what we came here for. That was the gold. That was really good. One, one last thing, just to make sure we cover it. We covered it. We did kind of cover it, but like, is there anything immediate um, that you have coming up? I mean, you've got the show coming up in Beijing. Hopefully, it's amazing how 
the world has turned. Doug and I actually ran into Mark Ryden in New York right when the pandemic was taking off in America. And he was saying how it was the opposite. Like he couldn't go to China because there was the pandemic was in China. And now it's flipped where he can't do his show because they're worried about him going there. And now you're in the same situation. So it's like it's been a weird flip in just two months. But um, so we have the show coming up in Beijing, uh, hopefully by the end of the year. Yeah. And uh, a book, hopefully by the end of the year. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff um, in the pipeline. Schedule's very full. Um, You know, we were worried about uh, selling stuff during the pandemic, but it seems to be fine. Um, I think the only tricky thing was, you know, sort of attaching like charity to the sales. That was like a tricky thing some people were dealing with. I know some friends. Yeah said that they were going to donate a portion of the proceeds. And then people, there was a huge backlash in terms of people saying they were, you know, disaster capitalists and things like that. And I think the approach is to just sell your thing like as normal and then do charity separately. You know, don't, don't conflate the two. Um, don't try to use charity to kind of, you know, inflate your sales or, you know, it's, or you do it, you do it a hundred percent for the charity yeah. don't all or nothing yeah exactly. yeah exactly it's funny that you bring that up because i've i've been noticing that pattern a lot since this and i'm i and i find it quite hard to pick apart like you know can i tell this is coming from a genuine place or do does this just look like an opportunist coming in and, and there's such a kind of nuance between deciding and it almost makes me feel bad because i'm like i can i know i know you're just doing this for the for the hype. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean we should look at the products too. I mean, some of the products are, are very cheap. T-shirts or you don't want to create more waste in the world too. Yeah. That, that's like another thing I'm anxious about. Where I record the podcast because we're having this issue with these Blue Jays that are squawking outside my window at my cat all day long. And this morning I came out of my bedroom and I walked into the living room and the blue jay was in the house staring at the cat. It climbed through the window. Oh, wow. That's so, that's so Kubrick. But you know, the thing that's, what's interesting is I think they're, I think they're hanging out because there's no like noises anywhere. Like there's no construction. There's no, that kind of city sound or whatever. They're just kind of like taken over. It's quiet. Are they intimidating birds? We don't have blue jays. Are they just like aggressive Uh, pigeons? They are fucking aggressive. These things, they've dive-bombed at my head twice. These are the things that you start noticing. If you sit at home long enough, you start seeing these trends that I never knew before. Do the birds actually exist, Evan, or are they a figment of your imagination? They could be my imagination. That's the question. How are you, man? I'm good. I am losing it. Definitely snapping. (laughs) Coming to the end of the sanity train. Boop, boop. It really does become a little bit like Groundhog Day, doesn't it? There was this rush when when the world fell into this pause that like the art world was like we're doing you know viewing rooms like websites you know whatever like all this stuff that was like the art we're gonna keep it going. Keep it. Um, it's nice that things have kind of gotten to a pace now where it's like you know what it's just kind of back to a little bit of like arts being made and that's enough. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I was getting a little bit like, okay, I mean, how self-important can we get? Uh, even though this is like what I love, but I think it's getting back to a better pace. I think I don't know how sustainable this like Instagram live conversation over nothing can go, you know, how much longer this could go, but Mm. 
are people still doing them? I haven't. I haven't been watching them. Who are you talking to, people? You know, it's actually Just a really good point. Listen to our podcast, guys. What are people actually doing with their time? I know. I'll tell you some things I'm doing with my time. I'm I'm working like 14 hour days, just trying to like re-engage with certain parts of the juxtaposed business that I wasn't really involved with when I was traveling so much. But I'm watching Mad Men, and I I don't know why that one seemed attractive to me. But like I just saw it on Netflix. I'm like seven seasons, 92 episodes. Go, let's do it. Okay. Um, Whatever you earned. What's your big takeaway from it? The advertising world, full of dicks. You know, um, I don't know. It's like telling a good story uh, trumps all. Both in the advertising concepts that are in the show as well as the show itself. Because not a lot happens in the show and for some reason it's just a good story. It's just like a good story sometimes. I remember thinking that when I was watching it. I was like, oh, okay. I'm watching, but... Not much is happening here. When do the dragons come in? Are you a dragon guy? You're Lord, no. you're a oh Game of Thrones God, guy? No. No. I think that's I'm why we get dra- along cuz you're not a Game of Thrones I'm, guy. I'm not a dragon guy at all. No. You can keep your wall wall rocks. No, what are they called? Warlocks. <laughs> wall rocks. <laughs> you can keep your warlocks and your wizards. Thank you very much. I have a question for you. Um did the Michael Jordan documentary make it over there in any sort of way? Yeah, I mean Netflix works like that. Okay, I see the thing is it's not on Netflix here. It's on like oh, really? it's on like our regular TV. Okay, in that case I take back my sarcastic comment. But I did see that Netflix was producing it. I'm like, well, what, what is that? I don't understand. So, okay. I started it. watching it two nights. Funny that you bring that up. I started watching it two nights ago and I'm gutted because I we missed a whole avenue of conversation for our last guest, Chip Thomas, who's from North Carolina. So we could, have, exactly, we could right? have brought that whole MJ thing up, but maybe it's for the better that we didn't. But what a damn good show. I sounded like such an old man there. <laughs> yeah, what, a, a great what, show. A, what a ruddy uh, good show. I, you know, as much as it's a little weird that like Michael Jordan seems to have like controlled the narrative of the damn show the whole time. I'm only three episodes in, by the way, so don't. Don't give anything. Oh, away. I mean, I mean, you know, you know how it ends. He wins the championship <laughs> no! and he's Michael Jordan. What a just psycho competitor. It's unbelievable. I mean, I like I say, I'm only three episodes in, so I haven't seen if there's like a real breakdown point, and I think that comes. Well, there's something there's really interesting about like they get into this part too about um, his just insatiable appetite for endorsements. You know, just endorse whatever the he just endorsed so much stuff, and you know, in an era when like an athlete endorsed like ten things, you know, he was like in Gatorade, Nike, he like did batteries. I mean, it was crazy. Um, but like his kind of you know, people are like, well, why aren't you more of a political figure? You know, you were doing all these endorsements, taking all this money. He's like, I just like basketball. You know, it's, it's like, uh, okay. Well, you like, uh, I know I really enjoyed that. That was a fun killing of five weeks of my life. I'm just happy he didn't fuck kids. <laughs> He's one of the few. Thanks once again to James for taking the time out of his schedule to sit down and talk with us. If you enjoyed that episode, be sure to dig through the back catalogue. There's plenty of gold in there for you to find. For anyone that has made it this far, here's an extra little nugget of gold to keep you going till the next episode. Till then, take care. I, I gotta be honest, James, the artist who is the biggest prick I've ever met in my life during the interview process yeah. was...